This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Keith Anderson, the president and CEO of Silver Sands Resources Corporation, trading on the Canadian Securities Exchange as SAND, and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as SSRSF. Just type in SSRSF. Silver Sands Resources' key asset is the Virginia Silver Project, located in the mining-friendly Santa Cruz state at the southern tip of Argentina, part of the expansive Patagonia region of South America. To date, the company has a 43101 compliant reported 12 million ounces indicated silver resource, as well as 3 million ounces inferred, and we believe that's just the beginning. Neighboring major players in the space include Pan American Silver, McEwen Mining, and Yamana. Keith, welcome to the program. Hey, Alice. I appreciate you having me back on here. I'm, I'm pleased to be here today. We've been waiting for some news on the Virginia project. Drill results have been pending for quite some time, and you have some encouraging initial drill results. I'm excited about what more you've got going because these are outstanding. Let's talk about the Virginia project in Argentina. Seriously, these are some really exciting times right now for Silver Sands. We've been waiting a while for these, so it has taken a while. You know, get the same excuse from everybody. COVID sort of slowing things down. We've received our first six assays out of 18 and the other ones they're at the lab and we'll announce those once we get them. So far, the initial results we got, we're really encouraged by. I'll go over there a couple of the real highlights as far as the assays and stuff that we got back and a little bit of sort of what these mean to us and the significance. I'll go over a couple of them here. Number one is known as the Martina. It's the conceptual open pit Martina and there's a structure that ran through that and keeps on going. So what we did is we stepped out about 70 meters from that already conceptual open pit and we intersected a really good wide intercept. We had 33 and a half meters that were averaging about 198 grams per ton. And then inside of that intercept was 17.7 meters with a higher grade intersection of 313 grams, which is when you're talking open pit, those are like fantastic grades. That was one of the holes offsetting and that was the Martina conceptual open pit. Ellie Central, it had a gap, like there's the Ellie Central North and the South and there's about an 850 meter gap in between those two. So what they did is they popped the hole in roughly the middle of that. And they also returned a really nice intercept. We had 12 meters. It was grading. It was about 184 grams per ton. And then within that intercept, they had a higher grade intersection. It was four and a half meters, averaging about 442 grams per ton. Again, open pit type stuff. Those are really, really encouraging grades. Like I'm really happy with what they've come back with. So with the initial holes that we've had so far, this is really starting to expand. The open right now, what they have is resource estimate 15 million ounces. And in that 50 million ounces, 12 million ounces are in the indicated category. These are 43101 compliant resources, by the way. 12 million ounces in the indicated category, and that's averaging about 300 grams per ton. And then we have another 3 million inferred ounces, and that's averaging just over 200 grams per ton. That's our starting point. I mean, we came onto this property with the knowledge that there's already a resource of 15 million ounces, and all we're doing, trying to add as many ounces as we can. So as you can see from what I explained there, with the step-out holes outside side of the conceptual open pit that they've defined that resource out of, this is just adding ounces. Like, I mean, whether the thing's contiguous right through, we're still hitting outside of that open pit. So we know we're going to be adding ounces. And that was our whole plan from day one. Get in and let's start adding ounces. And you're adding significant ounces, uh, according to what I see here in the Eli Central Zone. It's about 441 grams per ton. That includes one of the hits there. And that's over 4.5 meters. And then again, at Martina, you referenced this earlier, 300 
316 grams per ton at 17.7 meters, and you're adding those ounces potentially onto the 43101 resource that you already have, and you're just beginning stepping out here. Alice, it's just like, seriously, this is six out of the first 18 holes, and we've got our crews now are on their way back to the property. They should be there shortly, and we're planning a very aggressive phase two drill program to continue on. We're going to be not only continuing on along these structures and adding ounces to that, but we've got some really encouraging areas outside the known resource area that through trenching and rock chip samples that we're going to also do some testing. Our main focus has been to add ounces. This is a large property. It's 774,000 hectares. So this is a very small portion of the property. We've had a lot of good indications outside of this Virginia discovery that we're going to start testing as well. So not only are we going to continue to drill along these structures outside of these conceptual open pits to add ounces. We've got a lot of other areas that have like a high degree of interest through the rock chip samples, trenching that they've done that have come back with phenomenal grades, like upwards, some of them rock chip and channel sampling upwards in the thousands of grams per ton. So those are some other areas that we'll be testing as well. Our main focus still is going to be adding ounces. I'm hoping that through this drill program, the 18 holes that we've done so far, and now the next drill program that we're going to do, we've got even a phase three that could be in the works. We would hope maybe in the third quarter, of this year or later in this year be able to add to that already known resource where we can upgrade the resource estimate from 15 million ounces to whatever it is that we can come up with over our exploration program here. You know, this looks very similar to some of the stories I've seen in Mexico with regard to silver over the past few years. I won't mention any of the companies, but they value anywhere from 4 to 5 to $9 a share right now. Of course, we're not making any predictions. We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. But the extent of this property, the land position you have there in Argentina is something I've really not seen in years. I can't recall anything comparable. Oh, like if, if you do a little due diligence and go onto our website, our property, the size of it compared to the miners that are around us. I mean, we're surrounded by miners. We got Pan American Silver, Newmont's just to the north of us, McEwen Hothschilds. These guys are all actively mining. And you look at the size of the Virginia, our property, it's massive. It's a very large, and I think, in my opinion, is very underexplored. I mean, there's so much potential on this property outside of the Virginia silver discovery that we're working on right now. There's a lot of other really interesting areas on this property. So as far as a small junior exploration company, we really want to add to the ounces that are already known. So then it starts to maybe bring some bigger interest to what we're doing and adds to our bottom line and helps to finance the company as we move along. But as we're doing that, we do want to do some exploratory stuff on what we think is some other very exciting parts of the property. How are you cashed up for this exploration? Because if it were my company, and I'm a shareholder, so in a sense, it is my company, I'd want to drill as much as possible. Ellis, that's our plan. Thank goodness. Back in the summertime when the markets were really busy, I was able to raise an additional just over two and a half million. I think it was 2750000 So as it stands right now, going into this next phase of drilling and exploration, I mean, we've got over $3 million cash, so we don't need to raise any money at these levels. We've got a lot of warrants that are in that 25 to $0.30 cent range that I'm confident we'll have. Those will start getting exercised once the stock starts moving up. And I anticipate some good movement on the stock, especially being in the silver space right now. I see some pretty good moves both in gold and silver. I think silver will outperform gold. And when that starts to happen, the silver space is a very small space. When the money starts to pour in, I think we're going to be in for some good times. And silver sands hopefully will be coming up. With the results, we'll just carry on. That sure does look like a trend with silver outperforming gold, especially since it's not just a speculative metal, but it's a very well-used industrial metal. I like your share structures. It's just at the right 
right sweet spot right now with about 56 million shares. Yeah, exactly. You look at our market cap, we're trading, I think, as you and I are speaking, we're probably trading around a quarter. I mean, the market cap right now, around a $15 million market cap on any given day. But if we're adding ounces to a 15 million ounce already known 43101 compliant resource, there's a lot of upside on that. We've got a very low market capitalization right now with, I think, a potential big, big upside for this. And I'm excited. I've got a lot of crews that are working down there that are excited. I've got guys up here helping me out in the day-to-day stuff on marketing and stuff. We're working hard. We're certainly not sitting on our laurels. We're ready to go full bore on this. And I hope I can make my shareholders extremely happy and make them a lot of money. Well, Keith, it's always great to catch up with you, especially as a shareholder of the company. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Congratulations and good luck to you in the future. Alice, thanks for having me on today. Stay tuned because we have a lot of news to come. I've been speaking with Keith Anderson, the president and CEO of Silver Sands Resources Corporation, trading on the Canadian Securities Exchange as SAND and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as SSRSF. Just type in SSRSF. Silver Sands Resources is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Subscribe now. It's free. Go to ellis.gold. Join me for an interview with John Ranville, President and CEO of Focus Mining Corporation, trading as FKMCF in the U.S. and on the TSX Venture Exchange as FKM. Focus Mining is a mineral resource company actively acquiring and exploring precious metal deposits, primarily gold, located in one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world, the province of Quebec, Canada. The company is determined and focused on developing the full potential of the opportunity presented by the Galloway Project in Quebec's Golden Triangle. The Galloway Project has demonstrated prolific high-grade assays in the past and focuses in the midst of a 40,000-meter drill program to further explore and develop the resource. Mr. Ranville has worked as an engineer, a fund manager, and a director of corporate finance, and has also served as a director or advisor for several public companies. John, welcome to the program. That's a real pleasure. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. Focus was formed way back. It's gone to some restructuring a couple of times, and some friends of mine who were involved in another company called Vanstar, which was a real success story here in Quebec last couple of years, where they outlined billion ounces of gold. We're looking for a new project to develop, and they were trying to get a hold of this Galloway project west of Renoranda. And we're looking for a vehicle and figured the focus was the appropriate vehicle. They acquired the project in the month of July of last year. And we're looking for somebody to run the company. I was in the retirement process. And so I got a call from a friend who was involved. And they asked me to help find somebody to run the company. I was myself in the retirement process. And strangely enough, the first project where I did some work back when I was 17 years of age, 50 years ago, and I was curious to find out why this project has never been developed before and to look at the data and realize that there's been quite a bit of work done over the years. But strangely enough, there was probably enough work and enough money spent on it to really figure out what was there and to unlock the secret of this Galloway project. I decided not to retire and go ahead and get to work. And with the help of my friends, we raised $5 million to finally see what was there in this Galloway project. 
given all the nice historical work and nice historical results that had been achieved, especially in the period of 2009-2012, when they did quite a bit of drilling on several zones that were quite well mineralized. So here we are today, and right in the middle of this drill program. It's a 40,000-meter drill program, which is pretty aggressive. You're putting your money right in the ground where it belongs. This is a prolific area of the Abitibi. You've got companies like Valdor and Naranda and Cadillac and Kirkland Lake. I mean, these are multi-million ounce companies. How did this Moore Zone, how did this Galloway project remain virtually a secret for so long in such a prolific area where eyes are on Quebec? I don't really have an explanation, but I guess to some extent, one of the issues was that all this ground had to be put together in the format that it is today. So there was a lot of work done in the period 2008-2009 to put the ground back together in the state that it is today. So we've got quite a nice land position now that we acquired from a Vancouver-based company that had other projects and obviously was not keen on doing any work in this part of the world, I assume. So we acquired the project and it was quite easy to raise money to do the work because there's a lot of believers in that camp, as you pointed out, just west of us, Kerr Addison in Virginia town mined 10 million ounces of gold over the years. And a recent discovery by a company called Monarch, just east of us, outlined 2 million ounces of gold just in the last couple of years. I mean, we're in definitely in the right part of the world, just a few miles from a main road, a couple of miles from a railroad. We got hydropower, easy access. People can go home every night. We don't have to build a camp. So it's the cheapest exploration program that you can ever conceive. I mean, just with a little bit of joy, I guess we'll be outlining some nice mineral resource down the road. All you have to do is continue to explore that Morris zone where I believe about 11 years ago, you found assay grades of about 30 grams per ton and one individual assay of 285 grams per ton, almost 286 grams per ton. I can't do the math on how many ounces of gold that is right now, but it's very significant. And this has been an unknown story. I mean, I literally just found out about you. Then I became a shareholder. Yeah, we're just in the process now of getting the company to be better known. We are now developing a marketing program in the United States now that we got the stock trading in the U.S. And the shares are also listed on the Frankfurt Exchange where we have some friends who are going to start helping out to getting the company better known over the next couple of months as we advance in this drill program. We've now uh, completed about only 10% of the drilling, so we've got way to go. We're going to be drilling extensively more Hendrix, GP, and another zone that is not part of this golden triangle that's just east of it called the herd zone. And anywhere between the herd and the GP zone, there isn't definitely mineralization there as well that's, that needs to be tested. So I don't know at this point if focus is going to be better outlining a mineral resource on whichever zone, but there's definitely a huge potential in that area. I think what you pointed out is just a perfect example of what we could be discovering. But I also strongly believe there's going to be huge potential at depth, given that we believe the Hendrix and the GP zone are probably connecting where we had some joy over the years with predecessors company, which very large intersections of low grade mineralization. So when these things meet at depth normally, you get better grades, who knows? I'd be very surprised if we don't unlike a substantial resource in that sector. Well, it's open pit and there's significant 
in-depth over there. How far down do you have to go before you get something really substantial, hypothetically speaking? If you look at Morris, it's actually not far from surface where we're starting to get some good grades, some good drill results, but we're going to be drilling in an area down to about a thousand meters in this round of drilling. And the same applies to Hendrix and GP where we're actually doing some holes right now down to a thousand meters. We completed one hole at Hendrix at a thousand meters already. We expect results in two or three weeks. Morris, we can now pretty advance in drilling the shallower parts. We haven't got much assays yet, but it'll be coming a couple of weeks and months as well. And there's other sectors that have never been drilled. We're also going to be doing some drilling through the winter areas that are more difficult to work in the summer because it's wetland. So we're going to be moving the drills around quite a bit and continue to drill with two rigs for the time being. But if the results are what we expect to be, we'll probably add more drill rigs in the next couple of months. It's a pretty large land play, as I recall, something around 32,000 hectares. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. We're placing the focus on the western portion of the project at this point in time, but we're also reevaluating the work done by predecessor companies again over in the last 50, 60 years. And we just recently identified some interesting sectors where there's been some drilling way back where we need to place more attention. We're definitely there for a number of years. You mentioned that you came out of retirement to do this project because I guess it's just so exciting that how could you not do it and there's some nostalgic value in it since you were working on it when you were 17 years old. What were you doing so successfully before this that you felt you could retire? Oh, I've been involved in all aspects of the mining industry myself. I started on the West Coast in the open pit mining in the heydays of Porphyry Coppers back in the late 70s. I came back east and went to, to work with a brokerage house as an investment banker and was very instrumental in raising money with Paul Penna at Agnico Eagle. And then a young man came, knocked on my door, had just recently acquired the project in Quebec, a young man named Peter Monk, who started a company called Back in the Old is American Barrack and it was very interesting and obviously we had some real successes not all successes but some real successes where we made some money so I was in a position where I could have easily retired. Congratulations on being able to retire and then congratulations on saying hey look I'm not done yet we have this big perhaps district-sized project here in the Abitibi that warrants further exploration. The share structure of the company is sort of at a sweet spot right now it looks attractive as a potential investor somewhere around 69 million shares and I think over 90 fully diluted. That's correct. We got a number of warrants outstanding and there's no trigger on those warrants because we don't want them to be exercised all around the same time and put pressure on the stock. So we have warrants exercised every week, every month. The money uh, keeps slowly coming in. So we have no plans in raising substantial dollars in the next 12 months unless we have a significant discovery which justifies, of course, a larger financing. But if that's the case, of course, I'm sure the stock is going to be a lot higher. We may raise a little bit of money here and there just to position some strategic investors. But other than that, I think the share structures allows us to be happy at what we do for quite a while. And as of this broadcast, I believe you're trading at about 24 cents US, which may be just over 32 Canadian. Definitely something worth considering if you are looking for a gold project that's been underexposed in the sector right now. I think one of the things that we are focused, try to do as much 
much as possible other than spend money on the ground and in a very effective manner and as cheaply as possible is we also try to take care of our investors by maintaining an orderly market and liquidity in the stock because we all have experience the uh, investment side of the business as well what do you see coming during the next six months to a year we are going to be drilling all of the mineralized known targets and some wildcats and publish results on a regular basis, at least until the end of the summer. This program will carry us at least until the, the month of August. Well, John, I look forward to news when you've got it coming up soon, hopefully. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. It's been a pleasure meeting you here. It's my pleasure. I've been speaking with John Ranville, President and CEO of Focus Mining Corp., trading as FKMCF in the U.S., on the TSX Venture Exchange as FKM, and in Frankfurt as F7E1. Go to their website to learn more, focusmining.com. That's Focus Mining, with Focus spelled as F-O-K-U-S. Tim Termonde is the CEO and President of Tega Gold Corp., trading as TGC on the Canadian Securities Exchange and TGGDF on the OTC in the U.S. Tega Gold Corp. is a mineral exploration company focusing on gold in eastern Saskatchewan, Canada. The company's flagship project is the Fisher property, located adjacent to SSR Mining CB Gold Operation property and approximately 1.5 kilometers from the Santoy mine itself. The Fisher property is bisected by the Santoy Shear Zone along its entire length, approximately 18 kilometers, and the nearby Santoy mine is currently producing high-grade gold from this structure. The Fisher property is under option to SSR Mining, where they are undertaking significant exploration, including drilling, with the intent of locating gold deposits for development into potential reserves. Tim, welcome back to the program. have some exciting news. Yeah, we hit a major milestone in our Fisher project and our relationship with SSR Mining. We just received notification and a $3 million cash payment, basically signifying that SSR has earned an 80% interest in the Fisher property in Saskatchewan, and we are now in a formal joint venture arrangement with SSR. So we'll be working with SSR hand-in-hand going forward to continue exploration of the Fisher property. What does that mean when you say that you'll be working hand-in-hand with SSR? What does that mean? Well, in the past few years, we've had an option agreement with SSR. So they just went about their business doing exploration on the property, giving us results, of course, as they received them. But there was no input from us. We weren't really participating in the exploration. That's changed now. As 20% partners in the joint venture, we will actually be funding part of the work and be sitting in on the discussions on future exploration of the property, which is actually quite beneficial to us too, because by sitting in on these discussions and learning exactly what SSR is looking for, that really is beneficial to us to help us explore the other projects we have in the area that SSR doesn't have an interest in. Once you develop those projects outside of the area that SSR has an interest in, will it be potentially viable for them to become involved? Who knows? It's down the road. We've got six projects in the CB Gold Operation area, and three of them have partners. We've got partners in SKRR Exploration, Abin Resources, and a new startup called DJ1 Capital. So they're option partners right now and the Leland, Chico, and Sam projects. We still have the Orchid and Mary Lake project that we own 100%, so we expect to be turning up the heat on those projects. We've now got a fairly sizable treasury thanks to this cash payment from SSR. We plan on deploying some of those funds to possibly drilling the Orchid and certainly advancing the Mary Lake projects. Can you give us some idea of what you have found in the past or what SSR has found in the past with regard to the Fisher Gold project? It's an interesting story over the last four years. SSR 
had to spend $4 million and give us 400000 in cash. By the end of the earn-in, which just happened today to the 80% earn-in, they've spent well over $12 million on the property. They only had to spend $4 million. They spent $12 million, and they gave us in cash payments now totaling $3.8 million. So they've invested in excess of $15.5 million in the Fisher property. And you know, there is a bit of hot air in this business and there's a lot of promotion. I'm just very happy with the fact that they have actually shown us the money. I mean, they've shown us serious commitment to the property. And I think that speaks volume for the potential of the property and the quality of the opportunity. Well, that certainly speaks to the potential in the ground. And we don't like to speculate too much. In fact, we really can't, but there will be some drill results in a few weeks that might be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. They did a big drill program in the fall and another big sort of milestone program earlier in the spring in 2020. Some of the results from that spring program still are outstanding, and we expect to get those in the next two or three weeks. And all of the results from the fall program are outstanding. So we would like to think that they must be fairly encouraged by what they're seeing. I haven't seen any results, but they must be fairly encouraged just by the fact that they triggered this joint venture and gave us a very sizable cash payment. You know, important to remind people too that we hold a 2.5% NSR on the Fisher property that is ours, Tyga's own 2.5% NSR outside of the JV. And with that NSR, we get a $100,000 advance royalty payment too from the joint venture. So we're sitting in a very good position there with the property. And again, we have other assets in the area that we plan on advancing and maybe paying a little bit more attention to now that we have significant funds in the bank. And really, we will be getting access to the exploration cookbook for that area. So a good start to the new year. Absolutely. Yeah, we're coming out of the gate with a bang. Let's talk about the share structure. And by the way, I am a happy shareholder. I've seen the stock perform over the last year, and there's reasons for that. The gold market and the work you've been doing in the ground. Yeah, we've got about uh, 80 million shares outstanding, around 15 million further fully diluted, so under 100 million fully diluted. We have a very sizable treasury now. We've got about 3.7 million in the bank. We've got a very seasoned management group, board of directors. We're basically a mirror of Eagle Plains Resources, which was the parent company, which spun out Taiga a couple of years ago. So we've got a lot of expertise. We have a fair amount of experience now working in Saskatchewan, and we're really excited about moving forward with the project. One other thing I should point out too is SSR has been working hard for the last four years of spending in excess of $12 million so far on the property. And you have to understand that this is a very, very large property. It's about 30 kilometers from north to south, about 8 to 10 kilometers wide, give or take. And so it's a vast piece of ground. And SSR over the last few years has been systematically exploring along this called the Santoy Shear, which is what they're mining right now at the Santoy deposit just north of our property boundary. But they've been sort of through a process of elimination, finding areas that are hot spots along that Santoy Shear. When they went in on the spring program, they had six target areas that they were planning on focusing on. They did get to four of those target areas, and they found significant mineralization in four of those target areas. So those areas now are going to see follow-up they still haven't even tested the other two high-priority target areas. So we're now going from sort of a broad shotgun approach to exploration to now very focused exploration in three or four discrete areas where they know there's significant mineralization. And this is how we hope to build ounces is by focusing now our exploration efforts in specific areas. I've been speaking with Tim Termonday, the president and CEO of Tega Gold Corp, trading as TGC on the Canadian Securities Exchange and TGGDF on the OTC in the U.S. Find the company on the web at tagagold.com. That's T-A-I-G-A gold.com. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. 
I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a chat with Dr. Eric Jensen, the General Manager of Exploration for EMX Royalty Corporation, trading as EMX on the New York Stock Exchange and on the TSX Venture Exchange. EMX is a precious and base metals royalty company. The company's investors are provided with discovery, development, and commodity price optionality while limiting exposure to risk inherent to operating companies. EMX has a sizable global portfolio of assets, a strong treasury, and no debt. Dr. Jensen graduated from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota in 1993 with a BA in Geology and received his PhD in Economic Geology from the Center for Mineral Resources at the University of Arizona in 2003. Dr. Jensen, welcome to the program today. How are you, Eric? Doing really well, Pat. Thanks for the invitation, Ellis. I always like talking with you. You've got quite a few properties all around the world. Knowing you, you're busy all the time and you're constantly plugging into your operation. You're not micromanaging. You like to stay informed. Give us an overview of the company with regard to the property the assets. Yeah, we've got obviously a rapidly expanding portfolio of project interests around the world. Those range from products in which we're operating exploration in conjunction with a partnership or products that are being advanced almost exclusively by partners, which is the ultimate goal. That's the focus of our business model. So EMX is a very highly collaborative company. Amongst these 200 project interests, the majority of those are being advanced in a partnership of some sort. And those partners range from the world's biggest mining companies. We've done repeat business with some of the biggest mining and exploration companies in the world, as well as a gamut of mid-tier to junior explorers as well. So yeah, quite a dynamic range of projects geographically in terms of the partnerships, in terms of the business relationships we have with these companies. Commonality to all these things is that EMX retains ultimately a royalty on the projects, which is the goal. And we're organically creating a massive royalty portfolio. These span quite a number of metal types as well. And we have a lot of copper and gold exposure, but we have a growing number of battery metal focused projects. We're doing a lot of that work in Europe right now. Nickel, copper, platinum group elements, and cobalt, those types of projects, but also some good base metal exposure. Quite a number of lead zinc silver deposits that we've added to our portfolio through the year. So a pretty diverse range of project types, geographic locations, and partnerships. Pretty exciting. Let's talk about battery metal specifically for a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, with the new administration coming into office. There's going to be the mandate that's been in place in Europe for a long time, especially Northern Europe, where you have some of your assets. There's a mandate for clean energy, clean technology, everything electric. And I'm very excited about that. What have you done to advance that portfolio and advance projects in that area? Yeah, Ellis, that's a great question. You know, we've done a lot of work. We're one of the leading explorers in Northern Europe. We have quite a presence in Fennoscandia. And by Fennoscandia, I'm referring to Finland, Sweden, and Norway, especially Sweden and Norway, but we have some battery metal products now in Finland as well. Several years ago, probably I was a bit of an early mover on this, but about three or four years ago, we started looking at this market and saying, this thing's going to take off. All the trends that you were talking about, the mandates that we see in Europe, Norway was one of the first countries to mandate the transition to electric vehicles with the goal of achieving new car sales being dominated by electric vehicles by 2025. So they were ahead of the curve, but we could see the writing on the wall, if you will. And the EU was certainly in step with that type of transition. So we also knew that the geology in that part of the world was fantastic. Everyone's familiar with Voices Bay and the phenomenal nickel discovery that was made in Eastern Canada a number of years ago now. But that geologic terrain, when you reconnect the continents through plate tectonics, that terrain carries right into the northern part of Europe into Fennoscandia. And so we see the same types of systems over there 
in terms of the magma types, in terms of the styles of mineralization. This wasn't lost on the explorers in that part of the world. Falcon Bridge has worked there for many years. And we scooped up quite a number of these old Falcon Bridge properties in particular after their merger with Extrata, they curtailed their exploration and they let a lot of the projects go. And those sat there for several years until we looked at it and said, wow, all this previous work had been done throughout Fennoscandy on these nickel projects, not only by them, but other companies as well. And three years ago, no one cared. Those projects were all open. We just walked in and staked a whole series of these projects and have now parlayed those into a variety of partnerships. And we're very bullish on the near-term and long-term value of the battery metal assets. So we were able to stake things that have historic resources, which is something that we love to do whenever you have an opportunity to do that. But we took a contrarian approach. We were doing this at a time before the market really surged and well before people were really looking at these things. And so we were able to put together at very low cost, a very cost-effective fashion, a robust portfolio that had a multiple historic resources of significance and that we've been putting into partnership and we're working on some other new initiatives now with some potential partners. So it's a pretty exciting time for us. Well, the market was very distressed with regard to nickel about three, four years ago, except for probably in Northern Europe. They knew what they have there. You knew what they had. How did you know? And how did you know that this was going to be a thing three or four years or five years out in the future? Yeah, again, it just came from reading the tea leaves, I guess, in some ways. We saw that, especially with countries like Norway, again, mandating this transition. We were watching the battery technology space. A couple of years ago, you may recall, Cobalt had this wild run-up. But in looking at that, we saw nickel as a displacement component to these battery metals and talking to the experts, that's what they were telling us. And people like Richard Shorty were pointing to this. They were saying, look, there's a long-term clear deficiency that's going to be arising in terms of the supply of some of these key components. And nickel was one that he pointed to years ago, as did others. And so when you looked at the supply and demand projections, that one made sense. And also the nice thing about nickel is that it also has another use. Like we saw the big run-up and then fall of cobalt. Its main use is that and pigmentations, whereas nickel is used in stainless steel. So there's a fundamental drive for nickel consumption globally that's in addition to the battery metal market, which is just adding to the top of that market. So we felt it was a really good long-term stable bet on a solid metal. And the fact is that the types of nickel deposits we're exploring for also come with things like copper, PGEs, palladium, things like that. So it's a really nice metal grouping. And you've got exposure to multiple commodity types, if you will, in the battery metal space was one peaks like cobalt or nickel surges or palladium surges. And there's also typically gold with these systems. Yeah, it's just a really nice combination. It seems like you're always going to hit one of the metal peaks in in these multi-metal type deposits that we're looking at. I was at a battery metals conference about three, four years ago here in Southern California. And one of the automaker or battery executives, I can't remember which company, was really pitching nickel as a mitigator of cobalt. Not because he had an interest in a nickel company. He didn't. He was just talking about battery technology and how it was changing for two reasons. The political risk with cobalt, clearly I'm talking about the DNC, and also that nickel's just better in the battery than cobalt has been. We're not going away from cobalt. We're going to continue to have it for quite some time, but it's going to be mitigated and diminished in need because of nickel. And that's exactly what we were seeing, Ellis, years ago. And like you said, at a time when the, the nickel market was very soft and just no one cared. We started staking these nickel properties and I remember people, <laughs> companies saying, what are you guys doing? What do you want those things for? But yeah, a couple of years later, it turned out to be, and we love those contrarian plays. I'm always looking for contrarian opportunities. The time to stake gold properties is not at the top of the gold market. It's well before that happens, which is how we operate. So a lot of the properties we're vending now on the gold side were things that we acquired years ago when gold was trading you know, $1,300 and was trading out of favor. So yeah, we'd like to do that. So I'm actually actively looking for the next nickel, the next gold right now when I have some ideas. I'm not going to tell you what those are right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the next year or two, you'll start to see these things germinate in our portfolio for sure. We'll compare 
important things we're doing right now. I'm thinking, and I probably shouldn't think out loud like this, stop me if you want to, but I'm thinking there's some as-yet-to-be-revealed deposits in Canada. Yeah, we're actually quite active in Canada. The last year or two, that's changed dramatically for EMX, and that's a logical progression for us. We haven't had a presence there, but we are becoming quite active there now. We've made a series of acquisitions this year, and we're looking to create an uh, organic generative program there to complement those acquisitions we've made. So we're making some nice strides there. I think that's probably what you're referring to. I'm just speculating. You guys are pretty tight-lipped about what you're doing until you've released it to the public, which I appreciate. There's not a lot of fluff or promotion, really, in a business that has to have some sort of promotion or exposure. You guys yeah. pretty much stick to the facts that you release when you do a news release. We've never been a promotional scheme. Our group is not focused on the share price in a month from now. We're looking at the horizon as we have for the last decade. We've been doing this well for 17 years. We've been doing this. And so this is a, I call it the crescendo of value creation. This is internally, we jokingly refer to this as the get rich slow scheme, but we've been doing it for a long time. And this is a crescendo. If you look at the value of intrinsic value in our expiration port through time, that's clear. This has been a slow, disciplined process. Well, I shouldn't say slow because it's not slow anymore. It took a while to gain the momentum that we've gained now, but now the pace of business is extremely rapid. Our portfolio is growing very quickly. We've got the teams in place globally to help accelerate that growth and can continue that growth trajectory. And it's a sustainable business. And we've got a very stout treasury that was built from proceeds from property sales. And as we need to raise capital, we've always been able to do that. We can vend a group of assets or an individual asset, bring in proceeds to the treasury. We rarely do financings only for strategic reasons. I think we've done one in the last six years or something like that. And I don't see the need to do anything in the near future unless there's a compelling opportunity that would require us to do so. I'm a big shareholder in the company. I don't want to see my holdings diluted. I know that the business model works. It's sustainable. We've demonstrated that through time. We're sitting on a big treasury right now that'll help us make a number of additional moves through time. What is that amount? 50 or 60 Canadian right now. I'd have to check the latest financials. That goes up and down. And we had a really good year last year with proceeds because one of the things we've been doing the last few years that people may not have paid a lot of attention to is a lot of our deals have significant equity components to them. And especially in a favorable market like we've seen in the junior sector, those become quite lucrative positions to hold through time and to continue to grow. And so we've had a lot of value created through our equity holdings in some of our partner companies. We've been able to liquidate some of those, add to the treasury. We do that in a conservative and disciplined fashion. Our goal is to keep the treasury building up through time. And that's what we've been doing. You have a variety of different partners around the world. I'm just wondering, how do you manage all those relationships? That's a full-time job, especially in the pandemic with the travel restrictions, whereas I used to just live on airplanes, basically flying back and forth between different projects and talking with different partners. Now I do a lot of that over phone calls via Zoom, other platforms like you and I are doing today. But there's a consistent and constant, I probably talk to four or five partners on average per day. I've actually had that many conversations just this morning with a variety of groups that are, we're working with. Our team has grown substantially through time. We have a lot of people seconded into partner projects. Sometimes the partners operate them quite adeptly. Sometimes we'll be the operator or we combine efforts like we do in a number of cases. The partnership focus of our business model is core and central to what we do. This is the pistons of the organic engine that helped create this company. And so we take that very seriously. We put a lot of time and effort into it. And I spent a lot of time doing that myself, as does David Johnson, our chief geologist. You mentioned Dr. Johnson, who I've met. Your company invited me out to your offices in Colorado during the last year before things became prohibitive travel-wise. And what I noticed 
noticed was basically the room was primarily full of geologists all the way around. <laughs> yeah. I've never uh, seen anything like that before when I visited a company. I'll qualify that. One thing that does distinguish our group, and we have some very talented technical people with solid geological backgrounds. And as David Cole likes to say, our decision-making on the commercial side is rooted in fundamental good science and good understanding of the technical aspects of our business. But at the same time, if you want to be a geologist for EMX, you also better be an entrepreneur. All of our guys have a good business sense. And this is something we're very careful about how we built our team through time. I want entrepreneurs. When we go to interview new geologists, one of the best things they can tell me is, hey, I'm already a shareholder in your company. I've been investing in you guys and I'm interested in the markets. I want to hear that because this is a business. This is not a science project. And even though we have a tremendous respect for the side of the business, I feel we're very strong at that. We get a great technical group, but everyone also has to wear an entrepreneurial business hat and understand how the assets and the geology builds value for our shareholders and creates a larger treasury and more value through time. That's really critical. Having experienced that firsthand in Denver, your entire team is well adept scientifically and with regard to business and being an entrepreneur. And I've not seen that really in such a dense fashion with any other company I've visited with anywhere in the world. It's very, very impressive. But it has to be part of that business model to be loaded up with geologists because your primary concern is, in addition to reducing your own risk, is reducing the risk for the partners you're going to do business with. You want to hand off great properties. Yeah, I think we've got a reputation for doing that. At least I hope we do. And I do thank you for the compliment, Ellis. That was a great thing to say about our company. But that's been a focus of ours to have the people that can see both sides. There are some phenomenal technical opportunities globally that aren't commercial opportunities and vice versa. So you have to have both and you have to have people that can see both sides of that. But it does start on the technical side. The geologic opportunity has to be there, but it also has to be a functional commercial opportunity. As I've seen some wonderful projects from a technical perspective that'll never be anything commercially. As much as they are attracted to a geologist, they're not attracted to an entrepreneur. So we have to be careful about that. As long as the commodity is something that can either be moved in the market in the space speculative fashion, such as gold, or conversely, as a commodity that's consumed, such as nickel is going to be, or lead, or copper, then you're interested. If the market and the manufacturing space is never going to be interested, that's something you're not going to get involved with, perhaps not today. Or you may look for that with an eye toward the future and not pay a lot for that acquisition. Yeah, that comes back to the contrarian approach where we see things that we think have demand in the future that are out of favor today. One of the things we've done is we've never been a flavor of the month company. So when everyone's piling into vanadium in a nonsensical fashion, unless we've done something ahead of that surge, we're not going to just run with that herd and try to jump on these bandwagons late in the process because that won't lead to a lot of financial benefit for ourselves and our shareholders. We're careful about that. We love copper. We love our core metals that we look for. We have great expertise in the gold, copper. We're getting better at nickel. We've got some great expertise building in lead, zinc, silver as well. Those core commodities are really what we stick with. We try to avoid chasing the flavors of the month unless we've got some kind of a competitive advantage. Now, one thing we've done through time is we have been able to attract talent. There's something that surges with, I know, some crazy metal like scandium or one of these things, if we find a global expert that can help us and wants to work with our team that can give us a competitive advantage, yeah, we'll certainly look at that. But we try to be disciplined. We don't want to put all our energies into a flavor of the month that's going to be gone in six months. What about vanadium? According to one of your team members, I understand that vanadium is great for storage, energy storage. So what are you doing yeah. in that area? See, we've dabbled in that. You can never say never. You don't really know. But you know, we've seen a couple of recent vanadium peaks that kind of 
fizzled. Valuations that ran up quickly for some of the junior companies that held vanadium assets, et cetera. I do believe that there's value to those types of assets and we're always on the lookout. And if we see a good commercial opportunity, yeah, we'll pursue that, but it won't distract from the core focus of our team and really what we're good at. And that's these metals that we are talking about, copper, lead, zinc, silver, gold, nickel, those types of things. I think geologists with a marketing hat and a business hat such as you are more or less intuitive dowsers, sort of like physicians where they know exactly where the pain is and, and how to treat it before even medically diagnosing it. So in that regard, I want to ask you what your intuition is telling you about gold. Look at the, at, at the rate at which fiat currencies are being printed right now. You can't help but think that we're going to see devaluation of things like the U.S. dollar. This is a hedge. The gold's a natural hedge against that. Right now, one of the things that we're seeing globally that people may not appreciate outside of the sector is that not only is, is the gold price at a relative high right now, 1850 and $1,900 range, that's a great gold price for the mining industry. We're also producing at a time when energy costs are relatively low. Now, we've seen oil come back up a little in the past couple of months, but for much of the last year, these companies were mining gold at a time when the price was high in energy costs. Their cost of operations were minimal, and so their margins were tremendous, and that's going to continue into this year. So it's a great metal to be investing in. Even if the gold price sags, the energy costs, you still have to look at that side of the business. And typically, when you see these commodity surges, oil will be up there, will also be running up with gold. And that didn't happen in this last cycle. So the margins for these companies were phenomenal. So it was a really good bet. Even if it sinks a little bit, these companies will be extraordinarily profitable in the coming year or two. I'm very bullish. Have you noticed production costs coming down basically because of the conversion away from diesel fuel on the mine site to, let's say, solar or battery technology? Not so much yet. I think that we're not at the point where we can say that the mining industry has made that conversion. That's certainly what we're going to see in the future. But right now, it has a lot to do with just power costs, and especially the cost of oil being low in the relative sense to the gold price in the past year or so. And that will probably continue. What's one of your most exciting jurisdictions in the world since you have property literally almost everywhere <laughs> on all the major continents? Probably not Antarctica. What are you most excited about personally? You know, I was talking to David Johnson about this yesterday. And so we've been really bullish in what we've been able to do up in Northern Europe, but also Canada right now. Eastern Canada we see is a highly functional area where you do exploration. You can actually put things into production. You don't have a lot of the social license issues that we're seeing in other jurisdictions. And yeah, a lot of attention is being paid to, to Quebec and Ontario right now. We're right in the middle of all that. We've got some great positions there. So we're really happy with what we've been able to do in Eastern Canada. And coupling that with Northern Europe, you know, we've been more active now in Australia too. Australia is just a great mining jurisdiction. The commodity prices are quite high relative to the Australian dollar right now. Very functional area we can put things into production. There's a precedent for it. And social license is much easier to obtain. You know, that's one of the things that when you start looking at development of projects, it's one thing to have a hot commodity, but if you don't have social license, you're going nowhere. And so that's become a paramount concern of our industry globally is to think about the jurisdictions in which you can actually advance your projects. One of the things I know that there's been some criticism toward some of the countries in Northern Europe, criticism I don't totally understand. I mean, Sweden just issued some new mining licenses just before Christmas for some gold projects that we were watching. And, you know, I can permit a drill program there in six to eight weeks, whereas in other parts of the world, some jurisdictions it takes a year or two to get a drill permit. So yeah, we found those jurisdictions to be highly functional. We see the same thing in Eastern Canada. Some of the states in the Western US, Nevada is a great place to work. Arizona is a great place to work. And we've been there for a while. So I think really emphasizing the ability to obtain social license, the permitting process, and places where you can actually function and advance your projects in a meaningful way. Having met your geologist and knowing what the landscape is going to look like during the next few years, it would be safe to say, and you have an environmental component to your company that you're environmentally minded. Let's talk about the environmental aspects of your company. What are you doing 
as a corporation to brand yourself that way? Yeah, that's a great question. We're placing more of an emphasis in the pursuit of green technologies, battery metal assets. That's been a focus. But one of the things that people may not have paid a lot of attention to is last year we made this announcement of an alliance that we formed with a group called Encero. This is a group that specializes. They have some of the world's best expertise in environmental mitigation and remediation of mining sites. And so this is a powerful synergy we have with this group and a great alliance in that we can look at historic districts that have environmental challenges with an eye, not only for cleanup, but also to unlock further development potential on the mineral resource side. So that partnership with a very unique type of expertise in the remediation side of the mining industry is going to be very powerful for us in a go-forward basis. We're very excited about that initiative. This is a great group to be working with, and we think we can unlock value in a very positive way for society using that type of an approach. What a great message to finish on, Eric. Dr. Eric Jensen, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more conversations with you in the future. Always fun to talk with you, Ellis. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity today. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Jensen, the General Manager of Exploration for EMX Royalty Corporation, trading as EMX on the New York Stock Exchange and on the TSX Venture Exchange. Go to the company's website for more information, emxroyalty.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Jordan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again. A lot's happened since we've spoken about a month ago. You have some news out. You've expanded the Maverick East Zone at the Moore Uranium Project with additional high-grade uranium discovered in the basement rocks. Tell us about it. Yeah, so these are the remaining four holes that we've announced from our fall 2020 drill program at our flagship Moore Lake Project. It's on the eastern side of the Athabasca Basin, proximal to infrastructure and just east of our largest strategic shareholders' flagship project, the Wheeler Project, owned by Denison Mines. It's a project that we've been drilling now for the last several years, but in particular, in the last several drill programs, we've been focused on these new and refined basement-hosted targets. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Our exploration strategy and drilling focus has, has shifted more to finding feeder zones in the underlying basement rocks. We believe there's a major discovery to be made in these basement rocks, and we continue to, with just a few initial 
initial holes continue to find higher grade mineralization at depth. We feel though like we've just scratched the surface and there's more to come. So the announcement was a couple of holes in two of our longest continuous zones of uranium mineralization in this recent drill program, uh, both 17 to 18 meters of continuous uranium mineralization. Back in December, we announced the first hole, which was 17 and a half meters of 0.72% U308. And within that, there was a 10 meter zone of 1%, again, in the basement rock. So finding higher grade mineralization at depth in these basement rocks. And then today we announced another long zone, 17.9 meters, grading 0.28%. And within that, there's a zone of 1.09% over two and a half meters, again, hosted in the basement rock. So we're seeing the tenor and the grade of the uranium mineralization pick up in the basement rocks. We feel that there, again, is a lot more to be discovered there. We've only drilled several holes testing these targets. This is at what's called the East Maverick Zone. And so this is just a small little part of a four and a half kilometer long conductive corridor called the Maverick Corridor, which is the main structural corridor on the project and host to the main target that we've been drill testing over the last several years. We've really only systematically drilled just over half of it. So there's room to move and expand along strike and room to expand at depth in the underlying basement rocks. And one of the other bullet points from the news release worth highlighting is that we discovered some higher grade copper up to 2.3% obtained in graphitic clay-rich fractures within a broader zone of uranium-enriched and clay-altered granitic pegmatite. And this was discovered 100 meters below the unconformity. So we're seeing mineralization now even deeper below the unconformity in the basement rocks in some exploratory drill holes, which is very exciting and needs follow-up work, which we're planning to do here come February, a drill program that's currently being planned, fully funded, and we'll commence drilling again in the coming months to follow up on these results and to test some new targets as well. And you're cashed up for this drilling, aren't you? We are, yes. We raised money in the latter part of last year. Most of the money that we've raised recently has been institutional money coming in, which is great to see. And I think that illustrates the renewed interest in uranium and in the few active uranium companies that are still around here. I think as we see the market continue to improve the uranium market recovery, which is accelerating, I think we'll see more and more investor interest, in particular institutional investor interest, come into the space. I think that's a lot of generalist interest as well. I don't know for a fact about the breakdown. I just know that during the last month, since we spoke last early part of December, I believe, your stock has gone up about 20% or so. And that is pretty much puts you at the top of my portfolio as far as movement is concerned. Uh, Yeah, well, I think if you look at it from November, it's uh, almost up 80 or 90%. There's been a move across the board. There's been, as I said, renewed interest in improving sentiment in the space. And there's a number of reasons for that. We covered a few of them early in December, but I think it's still the early days. One of the key things to note is the combined market capitalization of all publicly traded uranium companies is still less than 20 billion, even with the recent move. So it's still just a tiny space and cap flowing into it is going to move it significantly higher very quickly. We've seen that with some other sectors and we've seen you know, a lot of money moving into the equity markets and to specific asset classes. And uranium, as you and I have discussed for several years now, has been one of the more unloved and underfollowed sectors out there. And it's now starting to get attention, rightfully so. It provides the fuel for nuclear power plants, the only source of, of carbon-free 
baseload electricity, very reliable, safe, and cost-effective source of electricity generation. And as the world moves to decarbonize, and that's one of the reasons we've seen money flow into the sector, is it's started to get the interest of the ESG crowd. There's a lot of money floating around for ESG sectors, and nuclear is going to be an important part of that and of the move to decarbonize the electrical grid globally. Going forward, we've seen now the U.S. announce that they're planning to go carbon neutral by 2050. China, the largest polluter in the world, planning to go carbon neutral by 2060. They have to embrace nuclear energy as a part of that plan and as a part of that strategy. And we've seen that with Biden's $1.8 trillion climate budget plan, the rollout of small modular reactors in the U.S. We saw late last year this already happening in the U.K. with the Rolls-Royce agreement with the government to roll out 16 SMRs there. And then getting back to China and other parts of the developing world, India, parts of the Middle East, where you continue to see the growth in nuclear energy and therefore uranium demand with larger nuclear power plants being built to power their cities and to provide that baseload carbon-free electricity. You know, there's some old timers probably listening to this broadcast that remember back in the 70s when the disposal of fuel rods was an issue and it was a, a toxic issue. That's been completely eliminated. It's no longer an issue at all. Is it? Well, it's definitely not the same issue that they had previously. And when we look at the nuclear fuel waste with earlier nuclear power plant designs, that was a big issue. Now, like any industry, the industry has advanced. The new nuclear reactors are much more efficient. They produce less waste. And so you see as a result of that, over the number of generations of nuclear power plants and designs, you've seen these reactors become more safe and produce less waste. So yes, that is something that they've addressed and continue to address. But bottom line is, as we move to a world where we don't want to pollute the air, we're combating climate change on a daily basis. We have this incredible source of electricity generation that's been around now for many decades that's available. And it's a great complement to renewable energy, to wind, to solar, to geothermal, to hydro. And I think you're just going to see that macro trend continue to improve sentiment around nuclear energy going forward. We're seeing that across the world right now. And I'll just make one last note on the U.S. And this is, again, getting back to why I think we've seen a rise in the uranium company share prices over the last month to two months here. We're starting to see U.S. legislation that's positive for nuclear, that's positive for uranium mining, in particular in North America. We've seen now this strategic reserve of about $150 million a year. That's about three to four million pounds of uranium that the U.S. is going to be stockpiling. We've seen the extension and amendment to the Russian suspension agreement to limit the number of imports ultimately coming into the U.S. from Russia of uranium. And we're just seeing a move towards, in particular, places like the U.S., we're seeing a move towards secure supply chain, reliable supply chain. So nuclear fuel for nuclear power plants, you got to remember the U.S. is still the largest consumer of uranium globally. They have just under 100 nuclear reactors operating. They're the largest consumer of uranium. They produce less than 1% of their annual requirements, and they have to rely heavily on countries like Kazakhstan and Russia and Uzbekistan and parts of Africa for that supply. This is 20% of the electrical grid in the U.S., and a lot of that fuel is coming from places that may not be long-term reliable sources of uranium. So that's where Canadian and American and Australian companies stand to benefit. 
you do have an Australian partner and a couple of Canadian partners. So I want to talk about that in a minute. But how much uranium is there in the Athabasca? How much does Canada have? Can you sustain the world with what you have there? There is a lot of uranium in the Athabasca Basin. It's the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. If you look at the two largest uranium mines in the world being Cigar Lake and MacArthur River, they have hundreds of millions of pounds of high grade uranium. It's one of the few jurisdictions globally where you can produce at a low cost because of these high grades. To put it in perspective, 1% U308 is equivalent to about 20 grams per ton of gold. And we've had results on our flagship project as high as 21% U308. And you can see very high grade zones of mineralization that result in very high value per ton ore that can be extracted. And so yes, the Athabasca Basin for decades to come can be a reliable source of uranium for North America and for the world. And yet in the junior space, in the junior mining space, there are not a lot of choices for viable uranium companies right now. I was going through my Rolodex cleaning out some business cards the other day during the holidays and there's companies that don't even exist anymore they were taken out like Hathor Mega Uranium for instance they're gone yeah I mean look in 2006 2007 at the peak of the last uranium bull market there were over 500 publicly listed uranium companies at that time I believe the combined market capitalization was well over 200 billion that's decreased to less than 40 and as I mentioned a combined market capitalization of less than 20 billion even with the recent move. So absolutely, it's a sector that's not crowded, which is an exciting thing for existing companies in the space and for investors coming into the space. And I think the companies that have stuck it out, like Sky Harbor and a few others, will stand to benefit the most. Let's talk about the partner companies. You're involved with a few. Yeah, so we have a secondary part of our business, uh, as you know, that includes prospect generation. And we have a big portfolio of properties scattered throughout the Athabasca Basin, over half a million acres of ground and six drill-ready projects. Our flagship, Moore Lake, we own 100% of. We're focused on exploring and discovering new zones of mineralization at that project. That's really the key catalyst and value driver for the company currently. But we have other projects that we have successfully now brought in three partner companies to fund the exploration at, starting with two partners over on the west side of the Athabasca Basin, one of which is industry leader Arano. They are currently earning in at our Preston project. That's an $8 million earn-in for 70% of the project. Another company, Azincourt Energy, Again, similar option earning deal whereby they can earn up to 70%. And in order to do that, they have to fund exploration and make cash payments. They're near completion on that small cash payment that needs to be made to complete that earn-in and to form the joint venture. And then just more recently, as we've discussed, a new partner company, which is quite exciting because they're based in Australia. It's an ASX-listed company called Valor Resources. We've signed a definitive agreement with them whereby they can earn in 80% at our North Falcon Point project. It's actually just south or southeast of our flagship project. And in order to earn that 80%, they have to fund $3.5 million worth of exploration over a three-year period, make just under half a million dollars in cash payments. And we are going to be issued 233 million shares of the company, approximately valued at just over a million dollars. So it's a great complement to our focus at our flagship project. It brings in some additional cash, but more importantly, it ensures that these projects that we don't necessarily have the resources to go out and 
systematically explore and advance. It ensures that they get the, the proper exploration and development work on them. And in return, we get news flow from it and we will retain a minority interest in these projects. It's also important to note that exploration in the Athabasca Basin, it's a high-risk venture. You don't always drill and make a big discovery. So having multiple irons in the fire several programs, in particular programs that are funded by partner companies, that just increases the chances of the probability of making a new discovery and creating shareholder value. Well, I'm a happy shareholder right now. Let's talk about the share structure of the company. We have just over 98 million shares issued in outstanding. We have some notable larger strategic shareholders. Our largest individual strategic shareholder, Denison Mine, is a strategic partner of ours. We have a very close working relationship with Denison. David Cates, who's the president and CEO of Denison Mines is on the Sky Harbor board. And as I mentioned, we have in the last year in particular, most of the capital that we've raised has been institutional, some new generalist funds that have put their hand up for the bulk of these financings. So it's exciting to see that new capital flowing into the space and we're fully funded for our plans for 2021. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com.